Hi there, and welcome to another Dishcast. This week, we have someone I've been reading and engaging with intellectually for, for, for years now. Um, and it's a real delight to have him on the Dishcast. His name is Eric Kaufman. He's a professor of politics at Birkbeck College, University of London. He wrote this book called White Shift, which was... For me, anyway, the first, agree or disagree with parts of it, it was the first book that honestly talked about the responses of white people in mainstream, mainstream in, in, in Western European cultures and how they responded to extraordinary levels of non-white immigration and how that has affected politics in ways that we haven't fully understood or even been able to account for. Um, I'm, that's a, 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 a grotesque simplification of the argument that he made, but it's roughly okay. <laughs> and I recommend reading it. Uh, it's White Shift is the, is the name. And he's also recently written a really fascinating essay called The Social Construction of Racism. Uh, Eric, welcome. Thank you for coming. It's great to be here, Andrew. I'm, of course, a huge fan of, of yours. I've been following your work as well for quite a while. Well, thank you. I, uh, I want to start with a simple question, really, um, because it's, it's become a kind of uh, litmus test for whether you are morally good or morally evil, and that is, is the United States, or for that matter, the United Kingdom, uh, systemically racist? Uh, what does systemic um, racism mean to you? Uh, and what, how, what's your answer to that question? Well, well I, I speak as one who, who reviewed crit the book Critical White Studies by Richard Delgado and Stefanczyk when it came out in the late 90s. So I've seen this whole area develop and, and, and it's basically about racism without racists. So the actual amount of direct interpersonal racism has been going down in the surveys. Interracial marriage approval has been skyrocketing. So in a way, there's been a search for hidden symbolic types of racism. And I would argue many of it, much of it is manufactured. But the view is essentially that um, you have these oppressive systems in place which, uh, you know, you can have a, a system in which nobody's a racist, but somehow the outcome of the system is stacked against particular groups. The problem, of course, from a social scientific perspective is how do we measure this and how do we falsify and disprove it? Because if it can't be falsified, measured and disproved, then it's a conspiracy theory. It's not actually a scientific theory. Right. So that is and I actually think there are kind of forms of systemic racism which could be measured. So so a good example might be. Um, you know, white people and black people being equally individually prejudiced against each other, but there being 10 times as many white people as black people. And therefore, when it comes to hiring, most of that discriminatory effect is going to hit uh, against the minority. So mathematically, that's I've always effect. found that so, kind of perspective. If, you live, if you're living in a country that, and you're non-white, that is what, 80 percent white, there is inevitably going to be a context in which uh, whiteness, I, I don't want to use that term, but that is the basic nature by simple numerical majority. It's like being a gay person in a society and regarding the entire society as, 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 as systemic heterosexualism, simply because 97% right, right. of people are straight. And, you know, and when someone comes up to you and says, uh, assumes you're straight when you're not, uh, I'm not offended. Uh, uh, right. uh, mainly because the odds are that I'm not gay. Uh, and, and you don't have to take that as a personal 
insult or affront. But anyway, I, I'm, I'm interrupting you. No, no, that's fine. But I mean, I think and that one could imagine a, a system like a police department where the individual officers are not racist, but somehow they feel a pressure to conform in the lunchroom and be racist, even when they're not. You know, or maybe, I'm, I'm or maybe to... for example, they they get the, 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 the department gets some fees from certain kind of uh, bookings and, 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 and uh, there are some quotas for these things. They end up disproportionately uh, targeting African-Americans, partly because of poverty and other aspects of this. Yeah, well, but but I think it is important to distinguish, let us say, a group that does is doing less well because <clears throat> it's poorer. Maybe it arrived in the U.S. because you know, just poorer from wherever its immigrant source was, such as rural Mirpuri Pakistanis arriving in Britain, for example. Um, that might be explained why they have a lower earning power or are disproportionately affected. That is not what I would consider racism. Um, it is simply a disparity. <laughs> so I think the key from a social science perspective is to distinguish between group disparities, which are bigger within races, let's say, between in Britain, for example, between or in the US, between Nigerians, for example, and um, I don't know, Somalis. For, so, so there would be much bigger differences within group than between them. Uh, but those would be accounted for by other factors than racism. So you actually have to isolate what is specifically racist here. And this is not what people tend to do. They tend to make sweeping claims based on what happened in the past. But of course, you could say the US was systemically anti-Catholic in the past. No one's making that argument anymore. These things do, these systemic biases do die out. You could definitely uh, they, you say know, that it, England was systemically anti-Catholic for a very long time. I mean, I right. I would not have been able to be a member of parliament in the 19th century. Uh, 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 it's, uh, yeah, and, and Catholics for that matter in England. There are all sorts of, I've, I've experienced being a small minority among big majorities my whole life. Uh, <laughs> I don't find it terribly horrifying. Um, I, I, I find it interesting and, and invigorating sometimes to be the odd one out. But obviously, I'm not, I'm not here. But what's interesting to me is that the analysis, the Kendi analysis, let's say, to use him as a, a kind of right. totem, um, which is that you don't have to investigate any other possible reasons for it. The disparity itself is proof of racism. Um, I find that just a really hard thing to wrap my head around. I, I can understand how for example, let me let me redlining in the United States that deliberately carved African Americans out of certain housing uh, uh, potential and also historic practices that prevented them from owning uh, houses and gain, gaining wealth that way. That is a hangover still in which there is a significant wealth gap if the income gap is not as profound. That that does suggest that in the past there are effects of previous systemic racism. Right? Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, this is the thing is that you could have had racism in the past, which was systemic. In fact, you did have that. If that ends, and I'm not going to say whether it has, I think it's actually gone to a very, very low level. But let's say that ends, you could still have the effects of those persisting into the present. But it's incorrect, I think, to label that systemic racism, because it's actually lagged, if you like, systemic racism. I mean, that would be the appropriate way of describing it. Um, and I think that that is sort of the situation we find ourselves in. But it lends plausibility, of course, to an argument that says these disparities are being reproduced by an actively systemically racist society. Yeah, um, it, it's, uh, for me at least, so systems mean consciously constructed systems designed uh, 
to alienate certain races and elevate others. Um, and clearly Jim Crow, for example, and the United States before the Civil Rights Act, very much was was ruled by that. And so I think we've, we've definitely had systemic racism just about in my lifetime, uh, really clearly and right. designedly and racism in the sense it's intended to hurt people of a certain color. But I, uh, there was an interesting uh, this letter that's been going around a man called Paul Rossi at an elite high school that was that, that <laughs> one of the things in his letter where he said systemic racism hasn't really existed since 1965 drew absolute gasps and shock from everybody. Um, but I think what he was saying was uh, that the legal, the legal and constitutional barriers to African Americans have been removed. Uh, and therefore, what's remaining is not formal systemic structures impeding African-Americans, but the overhang of previous racial attitudes, difficulty of a minority uh, in general, um, and that we're doing better. But this is where I get, and I, I can accept that those things still exist. I do think that, that African-Americans have a harder time because of those things. Uh, but I don't believe that means that we can currently live in a system that is in any way meaningfully called a white supremacy. Um, no, I mean, it's a bit like, you know, saying is America or Britain a racist society? I mean, I, I try to use the example of would we say Switzerland is a poor country, you know, or America is, is, is a disease ridden society. I, I don't think we would use those terms, even though, of course, disease exists and poverty exists. but you know, are we really measuring against some utopian perfection or are we measuring against other countries and our own past? And I think the latter is much more the way the term is used. There's so, an yeah, amazing I think, parochialism yeah. here, though. I mean, for example, if you think of China, <laughs> right. uh, it's, it's right. simply light years more racist than the United States. Right. You can't even be a non-Han person and have a chance in China. <laughs> right as well as the active committing of, of genocide against the, the Uyghurs at the same time. If I think of Russia, again, if you think of what the Chinese are doing in Africa and the way that they are treating that comp continent, if you listen to the slightest of the dialogue in Japan or anywhere around the world, th these discussions are only taking place in multiracial, already extraordinary multicultural and tolerant societies. Um, oh, yeah. Well, my, I mean, I, I spent about eight years of my early life in Tokyo. My, my dad was in first with the embassy and the Canadian embassy and then with uh, in, with a private firm. But, you know, he went when he hired somebody who was, I think, several generations Korean ancestry. Uh, the guy broke down and cried when he got the job. I mean, essentially, he could not be hired anywhere. And this is kind of white collar Japanese corporations. I mean, it's, it's just astounding. And yet, none of that, nobody knows any of that. It's all none of, none of, they are, none yeah. of them are going to the UN and, and beating their breast about <laughs> right. their hist history right. of brutal racial discrimination and prejudice. Um, but the UN ambassador of the United States just did that, went to went to the UN and apologized for America being a uniquely racist society. Uh, and you could put it in ways that, that recognize the historic evil of slavery and segregation without actually condemning your entire society as the most racist yeah. on the planet. Well, it's just, yeah, it's astoundingly parochial, really, isn't it? I mean, it's ignoring all the different slaveries that have existed, you know, the, the, the Arab slave trade in East Africa, for example, or 
the indigenous slave trades that have gone on, including amongst, say, indigenous peoples in North America and the West Coast. Or uh, indeed a redefinition of racism so that Hutus and Tutsis are not racists, even though they conducted an absolute brutal genocidal uh, civil war over those grounds as if as if as if racism is not a simply a human part of human nature it has to be it has to be consigned solely to the west primarily to the united states and all other incidences are regarded as trivial in comparison <laughs> right right that's an interesting one too because the tutsis for many centuries were the sort of slave owners and the hutus were the sort of enslaved so this was Part, the Hutus were partly justifying the genocide on the basis of we will be enslaved. You know, it's interesting. But yeah, absolutely correct. Um, yeah, so with this, this lack of context is just, this is part of it, is when we talk about including, let's say, you know, British colonial pasts and sins in, in British history. I mean, what's important, I would say, is to put that in the context of empires more generally how they treated subject peoples. You have to compare people who are in dominant positions with others in dominant positions. You can't, you can't go around with this business of comparing subaltern and dominant groups. Uh, it's just not, they're just not in the same situation to exercise similar responsibilities. So it, it's, it is amazing that that continues to happen. And yet many friends of mine, many people in my uh, peer group, as it were, um, really are convinced this country is is profoundly systemically racist, that this is the most important reality that we are confronting in America and that we all have to not just act to oppose racism, uh, systemic racism, but if we have to be fully engaged or we are <laughs> right. we are we are pro racist. This is the the candy thing right. is, first of all set a utopian standard Secondly, condemn everybody for it, then tell everybody that they're responsible for its maintenance if it doesn't change, and then stigmatize and attack people who don't actually, not just, even if they're silent, uh, even if they don't contribute at all, they are racist. Uh, Silence is violence, as we were told, uh, mystifyingly, (laughs) last summer. Right. Well, I mean, I think at the heart of all of this is, I mean, McWhorter calls it the religion of anti-racism, but it is the sacralization, the making sacred of historically marginalized groups. I mean, that's my definition of woke in one sentence is the, is the sacralization of historically disadvantaged and race, tell me what gender, you mean and by sexuality sac- groups. Sac- sacralization. We become almost, we become the saints, as it were, f- from history, uh, the lives of the saints. Uh, and we're all involved in the same cause. Uh, uh, and if you are LGBTQ, whatever that means, uh, you are inherently on the right side of history, and if you are not, you are on the bad side, wrong side of history, right? I mean, that's sort of where it yeah, begins yeah. to come down to. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, you could imagine a totem pole, the totems that you're worshipping, and you've got race at the top, and then you've got gender and sexuality somewhere further down, and maybe uh, fatness and other things at the very bottom. But So you have this sort of hierarchy of, of victimhood and oppression, uh, and people are worshipping these categories. So anything that you oppose that is in the name of helping uh, these these groups that are sacralized it makes you a racist or sexist or homophobe. So so it's by surrounding them with an aura, you know, they are they have sort of knowledge that we couldn't possibly have. They have a spirituality we couldn't possibly have. And McWhorter goes into a lot of these things. It takes these topics off the agenda of rational discussion and empirical measurement, for example. <laughs> so we can't have a reasonable discussion 
And in a way, because you remove any objective yeah, facts, yeah. Um, this is this is also true about SATs and testing. Is is that the goal now is to remove any objective measure by which we can tell how well or how poorly we're doing, because that means that we can get rid of any uh, uncomfortable uh, racial disparities. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Yes, by invoking the totem, uh, you shut down any discussion. So if something can be linked to racism or sexism, then that's the end of the discussion. So it's a very powerful weapon rhetorically, um, but of course it doesn't solve the problem and it very often makes things worse in many ways. Um, so it's these downstream effects of wokeness that I think are, are of which polarization and populism are one, uh, but many others, uh, crime, for example, uh, you know, the fact we can't talk about these things, they faster and get worse. Let me, I had a chat we talked earlier, I had a lovely chat this weekend. Amazingly, it was outside. It was a beautiful day. I wasn't wearing a mask. Saw some other friends who weren't wearing masks. We sat down. And we had a cup of coffee. And we started talking. And, and the subject of police shootings came up because this week we're, we're on tenderhooks about the, the Chauvin trial. Um, and I asked a simple question, which I often ask in these contexts. How many unarmed black men do you think were gunned down by cops last year. And there were four people there. And the range of answers went from uh, between uh, 1,000 and 10,000, but most of them were concerned that they had underestimated this because uh, they are under the impression that there is, as you can hear in the rhetoric, uh, the, the, the black people are being gunned down every day in the streets of America. Um, and you did a fascinating meta poll of this where you 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 asked uh, Democrats, Republicans, left, right, to estimate these things. And w tell me what you found. Yeah, so this came out in the recent Manhattan Institute uh, report. Um, so we have two facts here is the number of young black men killed by cars, and we have the number of young black men killed by police. Um, it's roughly 10 young black men killed by cars for every uh, one that's shot by police. And so we kind of ask people, well, which is more likely? Uh, you know, what is the more, more common cause of death? Is it a traffic accident or is it a police bullet? And what you saw was that uh, approximately eight in 10 African-American Biden voters uh, said it was the police and only one in 10 said it was a car. Um, amongst white uh, liberals who agreed with the statement, white Republicans are racist, uh, seven in 10 <laughs> got the question wrong. So it actually, this it's sort of what we call in, in the uh, social sciences motivated reasoning or kind of confirmation bias. That this sort of emotional, what Jonathan Haidt would call the elephant, the subconscious is driving people towards a particular truth, which is essentially false. Um, and that, so yeah, that just, yeah. That happens in a whole sorts of context. Like for example, in, and this is what always interests me, in, in the question of terrorism, for example, it's always been the, the place of liberals and journalists and rational people to say, yeah, this is a horrible thing, but please get perspective. The likelihood of your being killed by a terrorist is minuscule. You shouldn't right. have a nationwide uh, program of built on fear of something that is massively over, uh, uh, over overestimated. But when you get to a situation like this, when I think the numbers last year were 34 unarmed black men killed, by cops somewhere think, around yeah. that. Is that is, is that what you have? Somewhere. Well, I think it was I, something around 20, uh, maybe just under 20, okay. unarmed. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Yes. Uh, and then you have someone like Chris Cuomo saying, you know, this will only change when police actually kill white people. 
uh, and you, you realize <laughs> right. that do you even know that the the majority, a hefty majority of people killed by cops are white. Um, Unaware of that, this is a, this is the, this is the leading, yeah. a leading spokesperson, um, a, a leading uh, champion of liberal causes at CNN, has no idea what is actually happening. Uh, and then, of course, you have um, the the extraordinary impact emotionally of seeing these horrifying incidents again and again and again. Uh, the, the the reason it seems to me the George Floyd thing exploded is because of that video, which is simply horrifying and seems mm. to symbolize and touch so many, uh, so many themes of the American unconscious. Um, uh, but that, the response to which is absolutely legit legitimate and valid, that, uh, horrifying. We'll find out exactly what happened, uh, whether he intended to kill or whatever. That's what, that's what courtrooms are for. Um, but it definitely gave an impression uh, statistically, that this was just a constant reality in America, uh, when it when it just isn't. Well, no, it isn't. I mean, it is horrifying. But then again, so is a very similar killing or or death of someone called Tony Timpa in 2016 at the hands of Dallas police officers. And yet, very little coverage, no crowds, no protests, no threats of violence. So. The question is not the act of violence, it's the symbolism of a white police officer and a black victim. Similarly, by the way, black uh, victims of black assailants is also something that doesn't fit a narrative that's going to cause an emotional outpouring. So it's very specific configuration uh, that sort of plucks the right notes to sort of key into that uh, deep in the American or progressive American psyche, the, the, the sort of narrative, the plot line, which people have been steeped in probably through books and movies. Um, and so that's just something that they know in a way they don't can't make easy sense of these other plot lines. Yeah. Um, and of course, it distorts our perspective. Of course it does. Um, and at the same time, you realize that of those, well, somewhere, let's say 20 to 30 unarmed black men killed on the streets every year, the number of unarmed black people killed dead on the streets every year by other civilians. We don't have to, the, the race of these other people is irrelevant. The question is, where is the real toll here on black lives? Right. Something like yeah. 5,000. The, 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 the amount of crime that African-Americans have to handle on a daily basis in this city, you can, you go to the metro section of the Washington Post, if you're lucky, and they, you will see uh, story after story of a, ch a child shot dead in a barbecue, carjackings, uh, murders uh, in plain view, in daylight. And yet every single piece in the main section is about uh, cop shootings. Now, I think cop shootings should be taken more seriously, much more seriously, because they're agents of the state. And obviously that's important. But the lack the complete lack of, of care. I mean, now people say, well, you're lying. People do care about it. But the, the national conversation is not about how do we prevent black people being gunned down on the streets by civilians. It is about how do we prevent this particular thing. I mean, the amount of time spent on that is just so disproportionate to the reality. Well, yeah. I, and also um, thinking about whether you should, in fact, be sort of playing up these vivid images and the, the, the response to that. So, for example, there was a study done 
looking at the impact of BLM protests on the murders between 2014 and 2019, we saw an increase of 10% in places that had BLM protests over those that did not. And that appeared in Vox, by the way. Um, I know, I saw those, one, that statistic. <laughs> yeah. was something like we got 300 fewer uh, uh, cop right. shootings, but we had 5,000 more murders. Right. Right. Yeah. I, and, and that's even without factoring in the big crime spike that's occurred since the Floyd protest. So I think, you know, people aren't really thinking in terms of black lives, for example. They're thinking in terms of the symbolism. Now, I agree with you, of course, police need to be held to a higher standard. But you also have to think about demoralization of the police and what the cost in lives of that is going to be. So, yeah. And thinking in terms of vivid images that are circulated by citizen journalists instead of statistical regularities, I think really just distorts people's priorities. I, the, the other thing I would say is there has been since 2014 something Matthew Iglesias calls the Great Awakening, which is, as you I'm sure are familiar with, um, you know, the, the output of the New York Times and Washington Post. And I mean, terms like racist and white privilege has simply skyrocketed in terms of word count. And along with that, the opinions of particularly white liberals have moved sharply left. So now you have 80% of, of white liberals saying racism is a, quote, big problem uh, compared to 40% uh, around 2015. So this just enormous upsurge, uh, I think, is distorting things as well. What To what do you ascribe that upsurge? Is it purely Ta-Nehisi Coates? <laughs> is it... <laughs> is it is is it uh, 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 what what happened? Was it Trump that made people super aware of of believing in white supremacy on the march? Presumably, Trump did a lot to help that perception. He definitely did. Uh, however, you could already see it building in 2014-15. And Zach Goldberg, who, who's done some really good analysis, suggests that social media's uh, rise is one factor, and also the rise of you know clickbaity type journalism, which is sort of more partisan. I mean, this all seems to occur around that period. And it mobilizes the left part of the spectrum. Actually, the right, populist right voting is not connected really to uh, this upsurge uh, on social, the, the spread of social media, the same way the left wing awakening is. The left wing awakening really does seem tied into that. And I think just think it makes it easier for activists to get a following to organize flash mobs. And so that gave a real oxygen uh, to this sort of form of cultural activism. Um, and that's really moved the needle uh, in so many ways. It has. Uh, we see Biden taking position on di diversity, uh, inclusion, <laughs> right. and equity, this equity stuff, which really means that he's, and a friend of mine pointed out, he just owns a joint in New York that. The grants, for example, in the in the in the stimulus bill, aimed at getting uh, performing outlets up and running again, which is great. They're throwing a huge amount of money at people who are in theaters and in bars and all those to keep that going again. But but the proviso is that you 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 really you there's a list of priorities, and if you are half female, uh, you get if you right. are if you are a, a racial minority, you get first in line. And white people, white males especially, last in line. This is a this is a very deliberate attempt to to construct a kind of I don't know how you would put it, but to reconstruct society by currently penalizing the people who in the past did better. 
Um, that's a nice yeah. way of saying it's sex and race <laughs> discrimination. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it is a kind of form of cultural socialism where instead of trying to equalize class groups, you're trying to equalize identity groups. So you can't have any outcomes between identity groups that vary from zero. But of course, you can have massive differences within race. So it could be the case that every black student at Harvard uh, is of African immigrant origin. I mean, that's just fine. We're not going to care about that. But we, we are absolutely going to care <laughs> about the differences between blacks and whites, right? So it's very much focused on equalizing certain categories, which is really a socialist project in a way, even though it's not materialist the way Marxism was. No, it's 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 a new kind of it's a it's a it's an identity group uh, replacement of of class as the as the core understanding yeah. of the social unit. Um, the one thing that also gets brought up in this, and I want to talk to you more about this, is the immigration question, which you have been thinking about for a very long time, <laughs> right. and doing some path-breaking research on it. The reason that I found your work interesting is because it kind of found a way not simply to condemn white people's uh, panic, fear, concern about mass non-white immigration. You took the, raci you took the racial question by 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 the hands, and, and, <laughs> right. and most people just avoid that, and, and and so you either get this like, well, this is all because these people are racists, and then you get, and and, and that's the end of the discussion. Uh, tell me, tell me your what what your what your studies on white voters in Britain, America, and indeed in other uh, Anglo-Saxon Saxon countries, if I'm allowed to use that term, uh, uh, showed you about that. Are they are we are is anti-immigration uh, sentiment inherently racist? Well, I don't think it is. Um, I think what's very, what's at the core of this, I mean, first of all, I think the, you know, and this is a sort of consensus view, I think, among the academics who study this, that personal economic circumstances, your income, whether you're unemployed, plays very little role in terms of your immigration attitudes. The immigration attitudes are heavily linked to psychological dispositions, um, which are 50% heritable. Uh, they're linked to, you know, cultural uh, identities, for example. Um, and we see this pretty consistently uh, across different countries. And um, what actually happens, let's say, in Britain or in Europe or, or the U.S. is a bit more complicated, but what you get is an increase in immigration, let's say, in Britain. Um, and it's not that people who are pro-immigration suddenly become anti-immigration. You have a, a majority of the population wants lower levels. But immigration is their number five, six issue after the economy and healthcare. As the immigration levels are increasing, let's say in Britain, post Tony Blair, uh, from 50,000 a year net to 200 to 300, um, immigration typically rises up people's agenda from issue number six to issue number one or two. Um, and once it gets to issue number one or two, the, the soil is fertile for the rise of populist movements like the BNP and UKIP and, and Brexit and so on. Same thing in Europe, really tracks the, the net migration levels peaking in 2015. Uh, so yeah, this is really tied not to economics, but it's tied to cultural and psychology. Now, is it racist? This is the key point. A lot of uh, academics will say, okay, this is proof that, that this is essentially xenophobia and racism. What I think, however, they're missing is that there's a famous paper, well, a very highly cited paper uh, about outgroup hate and in-group love by Marilyn Brewer, which sort of says, well, actually, 
Attachment to your own group and hatred of the outgroup are generally not correlated dispositions. And that might sound amazing to us until you think of, well, if I love my family more, that doesn't mean I hate the neighbors more. And this, except if when we're at war, then the one outlines the other. So in the US, for example, if you look at the survey data, um, someone who's a very strong Republican is going to be really anti-Democrat and vice versa. But somebody who is white and feels very warmly towards white people is not more cool towards African-Americans than a white person who's not particularly warm towards white people. And that is something that's not well understood. So I think a lot of what's happening here is that you get an attachment to an ethnic majority group or an attachment to the nation in a particular ethnic configuration, a sort of what I call ethno-traditional form of nationalism. And it's that attachment too that's driving, uh, I think, the populist response in the face of diversi diversification and immigration, not fear and hatred of, now that's playing a role, okay, so we can't be naive, that plays some role, but I think the larger role is the attachment too, which is kind of a form of what Karen Steno, the psychologist, would call status quo conservatism in a way, wanting the, the present to be like the past, which is again, one of these heritable dispositions or partially heritable. That explains it. That's yeah. why I'm naturally that <laughs> right, way. Right. I, uh, what I think is interesting about that is that is that being attached to the country as you understood it growing up or in your adulthood, a certain kind of America that um, is part of your, uh, part of your personality in the end, part of your identity that you absorb, that that might lead you to be hostile to especially large numbers of immigrants um, uh, and therefore uh, turn you towards the right if, if you feel that you're, you're being ignored. And especially if you feel that your, your love of your own country is somehow being turned against you uh, and turned into an accusation of bigotry. And that is, I think, how people feel. I mean, a lot of people feel. Uh, a, a lot of people outside the super-educated uh, metropolitan <laughs> right. elites, as we might, might call them, like my, my family, for example, uh, who, who yeah. split on Brexit. Uh, but right. when I think right. of my dad or my brother, not to give my brother away, maybe I shouldn't say about Brexit, but, but, but they're really deeply attached to their understanding of England and their place in it. They're also deeply attached to the idea that they have a say in the future of their country. And they felt that they couldn't even vote for a party that promised to cut immigration because it couldn't, because the right. EU controlled the question. And once they realized that, they moved into the Brexit position, which is whatever's happening, I want to be the person, I want to have a, one vote and my voice in that process. And currently it's been obscured. And I think in the United States, for example, one big factor in this was the 1965 Act, was, which was the huge shift, was, was sold on false grounds. I mean, it, it, you can see in the Senate debate and at the time, there was this guarantee that nothing, in fact, Ted Kennedy says it on the Senate floor, there will be no shift in the ethnic composition of this country. Don't worry. We're going to stay roughly right. the way we are. In fact, the opposite happened. And any attempt to bring that up in subsequent years amounted to you being a reactionary racist. Uh, and this is also true in the United Kingdom, where the only response is saying, hey, hold on a minute. I don't want, my, my, I don't want London to be 40% people who didn't even, weren't even born in Britain, uh, which is a kind of revolutionary 
idea for for, for London. It's never happened right. before that accident. And you know, I just I sympathize with them, and I, I get that uh, to say you know just to see. Someone in an English uh, now this is this is this is this is different than treating people, immigrants who are non-white or have different cultures and so on. It's different than personally being horrible or intolerant or hateful towards people, which is I think we I think we everyone would agree is 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 disgusting behavior and that does happen. It is simply this queasiness, this sense of my country is changing so fast, and I don't feel I have a say. Um, and right and. Yes. And and what happened in '65 was this massive transformation of America. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, yeah. Well, there's also, I think, a critical distinction too between what's called ethnic nationalism, which says that you know a black person can never be an equal, equally English or British, um, which is a, I, I would call a racist, xenophobic thing, um, and being attached to a a historic ethnic composition, which might be changing at a certain rate, but. Um, involves a majority and a minority uh, of, of roughly certain proportions, which again may be shifting at a certain rate. Um, and a kind of national identity, which is not just about political principles, but actually, in fact, also includes many other, what we would call everyday forms of nationalism, landscape, sports, drinking tea, or playing baseball in the US. But part of it is also what has been the historic ethnic composition that feeds into it. And by the way, for those on the progressive left, ethnic composition also matters. It just matters in a different way. They prize diversity, whereas ethno-traditionalists prize a, a whatever has been the historic ethnic composition. And incidentally, minorities can be attached to those historic ethnic compositions as well. I think one of the things that's interesting when you look at Hispanic and Asian Trump voters on a question, uh, this was, I think, in 2017, it is important to preserve and protect the European Christian heritage of America. Uh, similar levels of, of, of agreement with that statement amongst white, Hispanic, and Asian Trump supporters, because they're attached to a certain vision or view of America that they knew. Uh, now, of course, younger people might grow up with something different, and they're, so they're going to have a different you. But this is simply about attachment, I think, for the most part. And yet somehow nobody can get past this idea that this is hatred and fear and, and fear that you're going to lose power. And it's not to say it's not about power. It's simply about attachment. Very difficult to get that conversation. Even in academia, it's very, very difficult, perhaps yeah. especially. Well, around the subject in which you might be regarded as a racist or a nativist, <laughs> It, it, when that word, then those words are brought up, of course, the conversation kind of freezes. And what I, I, I think so, what was so helpful about your book is it broke that taboo, and it said, "Can we, can we unpack this question, and see it in a, a light that is at least sympathetic to the people we are busy condemning, um, and understand precisely where they're coming from, so that we can help." I mean, my my view about immigration. Oh, I have many views about it, but uh, uh, but, but but before I before I go there, let me I'll I'll, I'll confirm this. I, I had a conversation with a first generation Mexican immigrant uh, this weekend, uh, and she was apoplectic about the the, the illegal the, what she called the illegal invasion in the south. Right, she, her mother lives in Mexico and 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 goes back and forth, but um, didn't want didn't think this was the America that she wanted to be a part of. Um, my grandmother was uh, an immigrant from Ireland in the 30s, 
you know, she grew up being terrorized by British forces, by the black and tans. Right. She had right. serious, serious, uh, um, a broad Catholic. She, she was a cleaning lady for priests. Uh, and yet she was the most fervent Tory you ever came across. <laughs> there was she would yeah. she would gather me at the end of the Labour Party conference. I remember she would always say to me, "Do you know what they sing at the end of the Labour Party conference, Andrew?" <laughs> I'd be like, "No, Grandma. What is it? They sing the red flag. They sing the red flag." And and there you had immigrant Toryism that, uh, in some yeah. ways, some new immigrants attach particularly to. A kind of idealized version of the country, and when they see that disappearing, they're as upset about this as old stick in the muds. Yeah, I'd say my, you know, I'm I'm sort of half Jewish, quarter Latino, quarter Chinese, and I sort of have, and both my parents are immigrants to Canada, and, and you you find something similar. I mean, it, well, there's a whole, there's never really many books written on assimilation or assimilated immigrant. That's a sort of group that you rarely see studied or, or their attitudes portrayed. And, and yeah, I think it's an important sentiment. It's one of the reasons why I think a lot of the pundits were blindsided by the Asian and Latino Trump vote. And, and certainly within academic, academic circles, simply refused to acknowledge it first time around uh, in 2016. And it's only now when it's happened twice, and it's pretty undeniable that they think, oh, okay, but I don't know any of these people. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. The, the, they also misread the attitudes of legal immigrants with respect to illegal immigration, um, that, that they are often the most upset about it, partly because newly immigrated people are, are the people most likely to be affected in the employment workplace by brand new ones undercutting their wages, um, but also because they probably spent, and God help me, I know this personally, a lot of time and money and hours trying to get through the maze that is becoming an American citizen. It is it's right. an incredibly laborious, difficult and costly process that you, if by the end of it, you're just relieved you even got through it at all. And then when people just walk across the border and claim asylum fraudulently and they're here forever, of course, people are going to get pissed off about that. Well, yeah, and, and, but but I think that there's a deeper question here, which is really around ethnic attachment per se, um, where in the progressive worldview, and this goes really back to kind of the early 20th century, that with the young intellectuals in Greenwich Village, people like Randolph Bourne, uh, you know, who were wasps themselves, and they were repudiating their Anglo-Protestant ethnicity, saying you should be cosmopolitan. But then they were trying to implore the immigrant groups, the Jews and others, to retain their culture, not to assimilate. So ethnicity, if you are an out, you know, a minority, is a great thing. Ethnicity, if you're a majority, is a terrible thing. That sort of dualism, I, I think, is really lies at the heart, first, of multiculturalism and, and even in, in increasingly of things such as, you know, cancel white people. I mean, there were, you know, this sort of anti-majoritarianism has a long history. Uh, and it sort of colors a lot of this analysis. And it's very interesting when you would occasionally see um, the hypocrisy exposed. So there was a, a piece that came out, I think, in the London Review of Books. Some journalist had gone over to the East End and found a fourth generation East Ender um, and was was fascinated by her story of being in the East End since the Jack the Ripper days and and, and all of this sort of thing until it got to immigrants and, and Brexit. And, and suddenly he realized that this was all part of the reason he was attracted to her was 
her rootedness and community, but that was also the reason that she was sort of against large-scale immigration. And you can't really separate those two things. And yet, in a way, the sort of progressive left, what I call left modernists, have been able to sort of have their cake and eat it. They've been able to enjoy the fruits of other people's ethnic attachment while sort of repudiating anything that's expressed by their own group. Huh. That is fascinating. Now, the United States, of course, is, is, has, is, is a unique country with respect to immigration. It's not England. It's not Germany. It's not France. It, I mean, you can see that in the United Kingdom, say, people have lived there for fucking ever. And no one almost, almost I mean, <laughs> in so far, no one really arrived. No one, I mean, who would want to go to this godforsaken island in the, in the North Atlantic <laughs> where it rains all the time? It, it, it was primarily a, a source of emigration. And you saw that with colonization and the empire, and you, you saw it from the get-go. Um, uh, but the United States has always been uh, an immigration country. So it's, it has far less, uh, it, I think it has much less uh, impact on the sense of national identity because we can all understand we were all immigrants at one point. Everyone here basically is an immigrant. The Native Americans uh, would be the majority white British in America, <laughs> in, in, in an American context, um, which and also that America specifically, even though you could argue that it was founded, obviously, in, in an extraordinarily racialized world, but essentially has, has, is not a blood and soil country. It's a, it's a constitutional country. Um, it's a country well, that... Basically, <laughs> well, this is what I've been told forever. Um, I don't know if it's, that's it's right, a, We're a creedal you. country. We don't actually believe... Now, I don't think human beings changed the minute they got to America. I, I don't. And I think there is. And when you can see in American history, you know, wave after wave of new immigrants meeting objections and 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 counter uh, and backlash, and this is the process that goes on. Um, maybe Maybe America is more attached to its dare I say it, Anglo-Saxon uh, origins than you might imagine. It's certainly true that America to an English person is so much more instantly intelligible than it would be to a French person, for example, uh, just in terms well, yeah, of the way I, it's I, common law works and the way it's juries and the way it's legal system, it's constitutional system. Uh, it's all very English in its, in its framework. Well, I, I think, too, you have to remember, you know, if you take the Ulster Protestants of Northern Ireland, I mean, they are not really much older. They're about the same vintage as the Anglo-Protestant Americans. And mm. actually, if you think about the first significant non-WASP-type immigrant group was the Irish in the 1840s and the Germans. So really between 1620 and 1840, I mean, this is sort of over 200 years, Samuel Huntington makes this point, um, that in a way the U.S. has, except for a very short period, basically been a country of native-born people, uh, largely descended for a long time from the initial waves uh, coming from Scotch, Irish, and English, uh, some others. But essentially, you had this melting pot that was still structured around more or less being white Anglo-Protestant, even if there were some Dutch names and French names and so on. Now, of course, that melting pot. So, so I think there's been this ethnic majority melting pot within the creedal nation that has been a majority uh, sort of from the start in a way. Uh, and I think that implicit tradition has always shared, existed in tension with the explicit creedal one. And I don't think you can get rid of the implicit one. I actually think in a way it keeps coming back. And I think Nathan Glazer had a good piece on this called American Epic. And 
so American yeah, I what, think sorry? it's, at, American it's called American Epic it was okay. the name of the article. Um, so I think that's why I actually think the reactions or the responses uh, in the U.S. and in Britain are not as different as you might imagine. And in fact, the, the data bears that out to a great extent, uh, that there is this implicit uh, sense of that melting pot ethnic majority. So it's porous. You know, it'll eventually be a beige you know, there's going to be different racial strains in that melting pot, but it's still a, a sort of ethnic majority. And it's, it's a bit like if I were to say all accents are American accents because America is just an idea. On one level, that's true. But clearly there are American accents and there are, you know, Canadian and uh, Irish accents and they're not the same thing. So, so on the one hand, it's open. But on the other hand, there are also certain arch archetypes and characteristics that are particularistic. And this is where that sort of ethnic composition is not irrelevant and can't simply be brushed aside and pushed aside for a tabula rasa. You also have to worry about pace of ethnic change in America as you would in Britain. Uh, and you can't be too fast. And this is kind of what I advocate is a sort of a, an accommodation between the ones who want it slower and the ones who want it faster. Uh, and you meet in the middle instead of saying one side are closed minded and the other are open. Well, no, it's actually about faster versus slower. It's not about open closed. But the many people on the left will not accept that desire to keep the country roughly as it has been is a neutral or even positive emotion. They would regard that as inherently a form of bigotry. I mean, I've had people tell me in all seriousness, borders are racist, uh, that any preference, in fact, any preference for the domestic population over people coming from abroad is a definition of nativism. I mean, that's that's what I've been called. Now, I, I don't think the country... <laughs> I, I, I understand nativism to be hostility to uh, people who have immigrated to a country who are not first generation, I mean, who, who are first generation. That's kind of uh, a, a, a desire to stigmatize new immigration and new immigrants and to regard them as inferior. That's uh, how I've always understood nativism to be. And I've been amazed as an immigrant in America how little of that there is. Just people are thrilled to see you're from where? I mean, in the beginning, maybe because I have this, you know, quote unquote privilege of being British, uh, the number of times people just wanted me to speak English uh, in this funny accent. That doesn't happen go, as much well, in Canada. No, no, but it's just, it was, that's one of the reasons I think subconsciously I, my accent shifted away from a very British English because uh, I, I was just, I just wanted to belong. I, I didn't want to stand right. out like a sore thumb. I, I wanted to be treated <laughs> as a member. Um, but to what extent is, 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 attachment to the present if it turns out to be a less non-white uh, status quo than the alternative I think you can just you can untangle that from racism but I I bet you most of these people don't believe that at all no I think they have a very sort of uh, their, their ability to think in a nuanced and complex way around these topics is, is is limited because they tend to ascribe racism so quickly it's such a taboo that it interferes with uh, sort of subtler thinking around this topic. Uh, and, and so, for example, one of the things that's interesting in, in some survey work I did was, you, you know, you ask people if a white American wants to limit immigration to sort of help keep the uh, ethnic, her, her group's share of the population roughly the same as that racist. Uh, and you get, you know, essentially white Democrats with a PhD or with 
white Democrats with advanced degrees, 91% will say it is, and only 5% of, of white Trump voters without a degree, they'll say that's what Shadi Habib would call racial self-interest or group self-interest. Uh, if you were then to ask, well, if a Latino or Asian wants more immigration to boost their group, share the population, is that racist? Suddenly it's down to sort of 15, 20% at the most from 90 or, or 70%. So that's not, so it's not as though they're critical of groups maintaining boundaries of some kind or other. It is specifically about immigration and maintaining the boundary through immigration. But yet, you know, and this is an unavoidable fact in a way that really the sort of white majority group doesn't really gain much in pure raw demographic mathematical terms. They're going to lose by higher rates of immigration. Um, and this is so simply from a narrowly parochial group self-interest point of view, they have an interest in limiting numbers if they are attached to their group as such. Um, and, and that's fine. That's fair enough. And other groups might have an incentive to, to have higher numbers, right, from a purely group self-interest. The, the motivations are actually the same. Uh, they don't differ. Um, but in fact, the morality that's attached to those two positions is wildly divergent. Let's understand diversity. If that means we all get along in a, in a, a, a heterodox society with a bunch of different Races, religions, cultures, blah, 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 blah. We all get along. That's uh, including white people. The div diversity that includes white people as part of that diversity is a much more compelling, I see, and less divisive notion of diversity than one that almost excludes, by definition, the possibility that white people are a part, a thriving part, like any other group <laughs> in the society. Yes. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah. So that is certainly a, a, a one of the downsides of the sort of critical race narrative. But, but also, other... if you're not careful, yeah. however, is that you then begin to generate white identitarianism in a way that can very easily curdle. Um, and you, you, you can see that. It, it, there's too much in the past that could turbocharge white identity politics. And white identity politics let's face it, does not have a great history behind it. Right. Um, <laughs> and uh, I would prefer not to do that at all. But that, but I also take your point that if you're going to do it for one group, you have to do it for all of the groups. Unless, of course, you have this critical theory of neo-Marxist kind of idea that, no, society is not full of people equally, that it's, it's, it's constant struggle between oppressors and oppressed, and that therefore white people uh, must always be kept at bay because they have all the power. Uh, well, there's, there's also, yeah. well, there's also, and I think another important distinction, which is between sort of tight bounded and loose bounded ethnicity. And if, I mean, I sort of favor a loose bounded form of ethnicity, which allows for intermarriage and people sort of coming to identify with certain groups. And of course, the longer established groups, the African Americans and the Native Americans and the white Americans are going to have an advantage in this because they simply have that longer history in the US, probably that people will assimilate to them. But the ethnicity is actually about a subjective uh, belief in common ancestry and collective memories and so on. So it is subjective and can be acquired uh, by people who are of mixed background, for example. Um, and, and I guess an alternative view to this uh, Hawaii-style multiculturalism where it's no, there's no one dominant group and it's just a collection of... of I mean, there are some successful societies like that. Mauritius might be one and, and uh, Guyana and so on. Um, 
But an alternative to that is that you'd have a, a melting pot, which is the majority, which is sort of people are assimilating into that. There, there might be multiple melting pots, but that people are melting in a way. That's a different view of things than this idea of a salad bowl of, of, of many different groups And of it people. seems yeah. to me that the former idea, the former goal of the melting pot is much more likely to allay fears of mass uh, different immigration than the notion that um, we don't want anybody to assimilate. We don't want anybody to feel obliged to conform to a single national narrative. Uh, in fact, that's awful. I mean, I noticed that the Biden administration uh, just removed the word assimilation from all the documents uh, the <laughs> government governments that use in terms of immigration assimilation they don't they they think not they don't just disagree with assimilation they want to remove the whole concept from the idea of becoming an american and that does seem to me another thing not only did you uh, did, did they advocate for a massive um uh, wave of of non-white immigration as it were if you want to use those terms uh they also insisted that this was about reducing the salience of uh, the broad, broad mainstream American culture. It was about attacking it. It was about undermining it. It was about dismantling it because it itself was an oppressive construct. So it worries me that, that the racial connotations of this in which, a, in which a Biden immigration policy can be read as a sort of uh, racially biased attack on white people. Well, yeah, I think I'm not that saying combination. It should be, but I'm saying that that no. can happen. People, people feel I, that way. Well, I think that yeah, that combination of rapid immigration and a narrative of diversity and anti-whiteness or white decline is, I think, quite a toxic combination for a lot of voters. Um, so it, it would be one thing if you had a high immigration and you were saying, you know, they're coming in, but they're assimilating and they're nothing much is going to be changing. And in fact, a number of different experiments, uh, survey experiments, show that that calms actually opinion on on the right in particular. Of course, it does. But that's not what's happening. They're they're actually sort of ginning up this idea of well, things are changing faster than they ever have, and isn't that wonderful? Embrace the change. Well, actually, as Jonathan Haidt and others would show, you know, heredity gives us about fifty percent of the variation in, in what people prefer. Some people prefer so they see diversity and difference as disorder. And they see change as loss. And that is, you know, that's a big chunk of your population. And in fact, as Karen Center writes, the more you talk about diversity, the more of a backlash and the worse it goes over. So, yeah, I think there needs to be now this is not state sanctioned assimilation. Uh, you know, that's not what we want. What we want is, you know, if people want to voluntarily assimilate, they shouldn't be stigmatized. Um, so this is not about compelled 100 percent Americanism. This is simply about saying some people choose to assimilate, and that's perfectly respectable. And actually, in a way, if there is this melting pot that's a majority of the population, it's probably a good thing for the stability uh, and the unity of the country. Uh, you, again, you don't have to do that. Uh, you could live as, a, as an Iraqi American in New Jersey somewhere, and that's fine. So you don't want to compel anybody to do anything. There are many different routes to being an American. You can, you can be an American through that ethnic neighborhood. But for those who want to, this is actually something that's actually equally good. Yeah, here's a here's a a, a sort of a devil's advocate point. Uh, the, this, <laughs> this, if we want to unpack the word whiteness, which of course is uh, a, a, an extremely racist term, I think in terms of <laughs> it, 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 it attributes a whole bunch of 
uh, behaviors and attitudes and views to people of a just people of a certain race and then decides to stigmatize all those <laughs> those things uh, <laughs> but in some ways when you think about assimilation to what assimilation to the way the country has has been there are certain elements of americanness that 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 endure some of them like the the extreme politeness on the streets for example which i think is kind of a very american thing if you've not come here i mean it's a much friendlier place than most other countries right. um right uh the volunteerism that goes on seems to be spontaneous in a way that's not the case in in Europe, in quite the same level of, inter <laughs> I mean, the community service and volunteer groups and the little platoons, all that, even though it's greatly attenuated in the last 30, 40 years, nonetheless, you can still see it. But the other thing is, yeah, we're the country of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and, and the Stars and the Stripes, and inevitably that contains some element of whiteness, as it were, because the entire country was uh, uh, overwhelmingly white for a very long time. Um, could that be argued that whiteness is essential? Uh, and again, I'm doing this as a devil's advocate. Whiteness is essential for assimilation, that, that you kind of want some element of whiteness to be attached to you. And that's something, for example, that you can say, for example, about uh, Latino uh, immigration is that there is actually quite a strong desire to become white Americans in the way that, that Italians and 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 and. Uh, Irish and everybody else over the over the eventually become white, just by self definition well, I, and by the way they now of course in the process they've changed the definition of white a little bit um, because whiteness right. then then includes like the Bush family, which is integrating Latinos within this old patriarchal waspish uh, thing, which I think <laughs> is simply fine. Um, I don't know yeah, how I, you assimilate if you don't have some sort of culture, common culture. And I don't know how you can remove whiteness or ethnicity from that common culture that's 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 the problem well i think there's there's two levels one is the national and the other is the ethnic which is to do with collective memories and identifying with uh, you know western settlement and, and that kind of thing um and i i think there's probably three different melting pots there's a sort of african-american pot there's a white pot there's an american indian pot uh which most immigrants are going to melt into one of those three but then when it comes, so I think probably a lot of Latinos are, and, and we already know this from survey evidence that a lot of sort of third generation Latino, I think 60% of them who have some Mexican ancestry identify as white. So there is already that is occurring with particularly Latinos. And I expect with Asians, it'll happen as well. Um, so that's at the level of which melting pot you, you, you become melted into. The second though bit of it is the national, right? Which is the... The, the American creed and Washington and all of the founders. Now, yes, so, so there is that kind of implicit link to whiteness, but of course there's also an implicit link to blackness through the music and, and through other, other kinds of traditions as well. So I think it's perhaps a fusion, but certainly the at the level of the which ethnic melting pot uh, your group or you happen to melt into. I mean, I think those are useful things to have. So they're probably the descendant of the Italian and the Greek and maybe in the future, the, the Indian and the Chinese and the Cuban is probably heading towards identifying with, you know, uh, the, the Pilgrim Fathers and Western Settlement and Ellis Island and all, of, and then that story. So I think there's nothing really wrong with that. Um, but again, assimilation is a bit of a swear word, certainly in academia. Uh, I think if we understand it to be voluntary uh, assimilation and thinking that that's an equally good way to be as 
clinging onto your immigrant roots. So I think both of those should be positive. Or you could, and to in its defense, the Biden administration proposed this term integration as opposed to assimilation. And I think that is an interesting nuance because it means you don't have to give up uh, parts of your identity, but you, but nonetheless, you are fully part of this mainstream. In other words, it's, you don't have to be all one or all the other, but we need to have some way to unify the country and we have some way to keep this a coherent single polity, which actually at this point is a, a quite an urgent task. Again, I find it frustrating that that so many of my liberal and lefty friends on this just don't see that as an important thing, that they don't see the country as a sort of uh, as something that needs to be concerned with its coherence as a single unit, that, that needs to yeah. be concerned about its identity and the way in which that identity as a nation gives meaning to the lives of millions and millions of people in a way that's very hard to articulate, in fact. It's, it's one of these classic Tory ideas <laughs> right. that there's something in there that's <laughs> really hard to explain. Um, it's like, why did, why did the funeral of, of Prince Philip still have this really deep resonance with the British public, even though their media and their elites are completely baffled by this? Right. There is right. still this extraordinary attachment because, and I get that. I really get that. And it, 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 it's part of... Uh, it was never bred out of me. I, I, right, I, when, right. it, when I was told this is stupid when I went to college, when I was told this is bigoted when I went to grad school, no, I still love my country. And I also then wanted to adopt my new country and support it and be part of it and, and be proud of it. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. And yet I'm told that I'm joining this vicious, disgusting hellscape of white supremacy. And the only reason <laughs> I could possibly want to be an American is <laughs> I want to oppress people who are non-white. And this is just relentless, the, the, yeah. the, the propaganda in this respect. It's relentless. Uh, well, it's, yeah. But you're always going to have, you know, uh, th there's a whole literature in nationalism that says, you know, you're always going to have competing versions of the nation. You know, in, in England, it would have been your your Anglo-Saxons were Whigs and, and your Tories hark back to the Normans. So yeah, there's always going to be uh, no doubt that the left is going to have more of a multiculturalist uh, myth of origin and, and the right will be more Anglo and whatever. And that's always going to be the case to some degree. But uh, you're right. I think it's the demonization. You know, if there was mutual toleration, if you could say, well, you know, somebody should be allowed to identify with their many generations on the land in the Midwest uh, family farm. That's how they identify with the U.S. is through that. Or they identify through the diversity of New York City or whatever. I mean, both of those are different ways of being American, but one of them is being stigmatized. And that's really where the problem lies. There has to be much greater toleration of these different routes to identifying with the nation. And, and I also think integration, by the way, is a little bit too weak, really, to, to provide. I mean, if we're just talking about political principles, I think, particularly in a world where there isn't a Cold War, I think that's a bit too, too weak. There has to, ultimately, I still think that there kind of has to be a, a melting pot that is the, you know, a majority of the population is melting into and that, that really has those collective memories that tie back. I think without that, it, it's not a disaster, but you'll become more like Hawaii or, or, or Guyana or one of these sort of polycentric societies where politics is more likely to run on uh, ethnic lines. And so I just think it's less smooth for having a unified society. When I think of recent politicians and their attempt to square these circles, to 
both make sure that there is greater inclusion and a, a welcome and a place for immigrants in a society while not abandoning the core uh, national myths to which these immigrants are actually going to become a, a part of. Um, I think of I think of Obama, and and it but it it's a depressing lesson. <laughs> Right. Here is a man who himself represents, I mean, just physically uh, represents a fusion of different parts of America, even though he's not really African-American in any strictly ADOS right. sense. Uh, he, he's obviously, he, he creates a narrative of America that both includes its, you know, intrepid whiteness, as it were, and its, 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 right. its, 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 its ballsiness and its, its adventurousness and its triumphs and its achievements and its progress, but he then also tells a story of greater and greater inclusion in that project so that we are, we're not a perfect union, but we're getting there. He told a rather moving story about how America can unite around its common themes and fold in different experiences over time. And he was, uh, and people hated him because he was black. <laughs> and right. at least it's clearly, if you were, and I was one of these people, if you were a real, if you were a conservative that liked stable government, responsible uh, moderation. I mean, Obama was essentially a black man who was a wasp. I mean, he was probably the waspiest <laughs> president since since George H. W. Bush, and probably waspy. I mean, the, right. his <laughs> sense of dignity, his golfing, all this stuff is in, incredibly. And yet, for a huge section of the Republican base, they despised him. And the only way I can really make put my head around that is is there is a residual you know 30 percent of this country that really is profoundly racist and thought even this guy this this almost model person was right. bad because because of that and then turned around and voted for trump which right. is an well, absolute but... repudiation of any idea of this 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 slowly in, um, maturing and enfolding national narrative well, I mean, I, I would say two things. I mean, I agree that there is, certainly is a residual group of racists, but I think it's important to think through another possibility. Imagine if the Republican candidate was black, right? I mean, how much of this is simply partisanship? Because obviously Obama did better amongst white voters, really, than Clinton did. I mean, so it's not as though that it, it affected the vote extremely negatively in that regard, you know. So I think it's it's certainly there are residual racists, but I agree with you that Obama, you know, not only in doing what you said, but also he had, he talked about his links, you know, his uh, parents and the GI Bill. So he, he sort of made these connections to mainstream white America as well as to black America. And he was he Midwestern. Sort of, yeah. He was Midwestern right. to his bones. And people recognized that. I think they felt it in the bones. Yeah. This is, and, and, and it made extreme care not to include working class white people in his coalition made it specific in a way that Hillary never did and in a way that Biden kind of gestured at but really wasn't that committed to um in, well it's hard to yeah. tell in that campaign because it, it was barely barely happened it was all on the airwaves but certainly now Biden seems to be recast as the person that's in favor of, of mass immigration and equity. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I think Obama really, and Obama was, the things he said on immigration, his policies on immigration, I mean, there's no way that could happen now. No, um, in fact, if I, you defend it, those policies, you are, Obama is, uh, in, in, in contemporary leftist discourse, a white supremacist. 
That is what Obama right. was. An unbelievably right. vicious white supremacist who deported all these people because he believed naively that his job as president was to enforce the immigration laws. And uh, and that's that's why I get this. What? How many times have I said, what happened to you? What happened to you? And I'm like, you know, nothing happened to me. I still have roughly the same politics I had under Obama. What's happened to you? <laughs> right, right. How have you been seized by this? this cult of neo-racism. And they have. You can see it exactly in the in the survey data on on all these questions. There's been this massive shift amongst white liberals between 2014 and, and now. Explain and it's just it. staggering. Explain it to me. You, you, this is what well, you do for a living. I, I, I want to yeah. understand why suddenly white liberals decided that they lived in a white supremacy. <laughs> right. Um, it's just that these ideas which had been sort of marinating on campus suddenly burst Fourth, uh, I think social media was one conduit and another was the sort of clickbait journalism. But the combination of these things just allowed more of the activists to have more of a voice and more of an impact. Uh, and suddenly you had, you know, sort of 60 or 60 plus percent of white liberals saying more immigration, you know, increase immigration, something that we've never seen. But in only the data if it's non-white. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not interested in any than, white yeah. people coming into this country because whiteness is evil. Right? I mean, that's rough. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it is worth sort of sort of re reminding ourselves that this is actually only a small sliver. I think the, the, the more in common report, the Hidden Tribes, only found 8% of the U.S. population fit into its so-called progressive activist definition. But, they, so but it, the, the, the percent of major institutions, cultural, political, educational, that are controlled by that 6% is close to 100% at this point. <laughs> right. And, and also through the forced multiplication of taboos to silence those who might challenge it. The structure of the opinion, I mean, I did some survey work on academics, and you can see there's a 10% pro-cancel faction, and then there's this 50% which are sort of on the fence. Uh, and they can be silenced pretty easily by a few rabid uh, ideologues. It's been incredibly successful uh, bullying tactic, right? You, you, the one thing that no white American, they'd rather be called a pedophile than a racist. They'd rather be called <laughs> right. a murderer. Than, and there's almost, and there are increasingly in that progressive sphere of ideas, there are no virtues or vices apart from are you racist or anti-racist. The, the whole spectrum of human behavior in which we understand moral behavior or immoral behavior is just completely absent in this generation. All that matters, the only sign of your virtue is your hatred of whiteness and your yeah, love of I diversity. Mean, well, yes, this religion really, it's this religious fervor which is just so remarkable. Um, I mean, of course it, it has an earlier uh, you know, you could see it in earlier decades. I mean, really, for a long time, it's been taboo to talk about restricting immigration. So it's not entirely new, but just the spread of this thing and and the impact it's having in dividing the society is is pretty astounding, really. And and yeah, do, uh, do we think that, for example, the fact that Google or Facebook or the U.S. military, uh, major corporations have all adopted all adopted critical theory as as a mandatory you have to have a mandatory course in this rather esoteric neo-Marxist discipline in order to work for the U.S. military, in order to work in the U.S. government um, and every major corporation. And this is extraordinary. I mean, when did that, when did that happen? I mean, I noticed uh, – and, and 
who the truth is who is sounding up to it um these are not these are these are particularly elite uh, elite institutions we're talking about super expensive private schools in new york city which are now indoctrinating children uh, that if you're white and you're three years old, you have to bear the burden of uh, slavery, and it's 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 madness in my, in my yeah. view, and terribly uh, uh, encouraging of racial attitudes. You, it, yeah. you, I think. Did you do the study? I mean, that did that once you've sat down. Oh yes, you, you you did the study in which if someone if you ask a black American to read a passage of Ta-Nehisi Coates, they will. They they will they will experience a surge in their sense of helplessness and hopelessness and 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 alienation as opposed to those that didn't. Correct. Yeah. I mean, you you the ones who read the passage from Tanahasi Coates were about fifteen points less likely to say they could make their life plans work out just from reading one passage than those who didn't read it. So yeah, it's it's has this sort of enervating, disempowering effect. And and but of course the the aim of this is arguably as McWhorter is correct. I mean, this is more about a white liberal identity project. Uh, you know, if, if, if you take away their enemy and you just help black people, that doesn't do them any good, right? So, so in a way that the function of this religion is very much to, to meet the needs of, of a largely white liberal group. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's, it's certainly dysfunctional. But it's also uh, an but, incredibly strong weapon for intra-elite competition. That 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 if if you want if you want the job and this other person is has had it for a while then yeah, let's see if we can find someone and call them a racist and then we will get rid of him I mean that's that's also part of this it's it's a jockeying um, the way that the mainstream the the mainstream media has uh, decided to pick various writers who don't quite conform and throw them out so that they have a purity of ideology is quite remarkable. Um, in terms, I, I don't remember such things before. Well, I think it's 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 more irrational. I, I'm not sure it's very calculating. I think it's just this ir irrational fervor, and everybody just jumps on board. I mean, you did have episodes of this, and of course, Philip Roth wrote wrote a book about this. And these things happened in the era of political correctness to some extent at a lower rate. I, I actually think we're just seeing. Uh, the massification of things that did happen. I mean, you know, they're different. You know, I remember one episode was the University of British Columbia's political science department, 1995, completely paralyzed with accusations of racism and sexism, all of which were free floating and not attached to any individual. You know, that kind of thing was already happening, but it's just become much more common with uh, social media. And really, the only way to combat it, I think, going forward, is going to be kind of is going to be through. Uh, government interventions. And, and I know this is sort of, I just don't think that you're going to see good ideas driving out the bad of, on their own. This is um, this 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 is where I kind of get really nervous. <laughs> I, you know, I've always believed, and I, I'm not prepared to give this up, on the autonomy of educational institutions, of, of, of a free society, of government not dictating what is taught or not taught in universities. Um, so the question then becomes, is this such an emergency that the government should intervene? Now, in Britain, they have, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, tell me, tell me what happened, what's happened in, in the UK well, on this. I think it's important to, to make a distinction between intervening to control the curriculum and intervening to uphold the law. So in Britain, it's intervening to uphold the law because the universities are breaking the law. It's a bit like in the US, speech codes are a violation of the First Amendment. And, and so what you what all this is, is a proactive um, 
government office that will essentially enforce what is the law and, and clarify. What is, in, also, in what way is that? The, in what way would that ha give me an example of? of that well, for example, if a university censures the speech or fires somebody for legally protected speech or academic research, um, you know, because the university prioritizes a, a some definition of harassment based on subjective emotional states over their commitment to academic freedom, or they prioritize the university's reputation. So in a way, they are simply pushing other policies higher than the academic freedom one, when in fact, in law, um, the academic freedom one comes first. Of course, that has to be clarified by the government, which is something that the government's also doing. It's to make, making it very clear that the academic freedom duties come first and the other things are secondary and can't supersede it. So it's that sort of level of uh, government intervention, I'm, I, and that has to be upheld through a, a proactive regulator that can do this in real time. Because if you have to leave it to the academics to sue, uh, it's just too time-consuming and nerve-wracking. You're not going to do it. The, the process is the punishment, I think one academic said. So you actually need to have a situation where the government upholds the law. And in a way, there is a precedent for it if you think of U.S. Southern universities that were practicing segregation. The federal government had to come in there and take away the autonomy of the universities in that area. Uh, so, you know, if you think And you're think talking of now about public, I mean, in Britain, most of these universities are publicly funded. So is that the source of the authority of the government, that they're funding it, therefore they can they can intervene to uphold the law in them? I mean, would this, would this apply in the United States to completely free and private universities? I don't think it would apply to the same extent, unless those universities were accepting government money, which of course a lot of them do through grants and student loans and things. So maybe the government could exercise some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of regulation over them. I mean, people will say, well, what if, what if, uh, you know, uh, radical Democrat, Democrats get in and they want to sort of push something else? Well, that's fine, but I just don't think it could get much worse in the institutions. They're already very woke. Whereas the upside is enormous if you've got a, a government like the British Conservative government now that is actually starting to push back on race and equality, on academic freedom, on, on in so many different domains. Tech censorship would be another area where you know you could get into, for example, ensuring, okay, we have to see your algorithms to make sure they're polit not politically discriminatory, et cetera, et cetera. So I think ultimately the only real voice that people of the more sort of anti-woke disposition are going to have, the only institution, I think Michael Lind made this point, is, is elected government. That's the only way they have to, to push back. So I think increasingly this will be what has to happen if we're going to make headway um, within the next few generations anyway. But haven't, this is my worry about that, is that the woke have really been thorough about this. They're, they're teaching three-year-olds this stuff now from the get-go, <laughs> right. that, that they have... Uh, removed any counter thoughts or arguments within the the, the academy that you that the, the whole concept of a liberal society is now from the get-go suspect for these universities and you find that out the minute you get there you the minute you're told how you interact with other people the first thing you have to notice about someone is their identity that's the first thing before you talk to them then you have to situate yourself from standpoint uh, epistemology uh, it is from the get-go, and my my concern is that this attempt to dismantle liberal democracy and dismantle liberal uh, procedures is so far along that the next generations are going to take it. They will have no understanding of what liberal society is about at all. 
Well, I, I actually, I'm less pessimistic than you are. Good. I mean, one thing. I'm, one I'm, thing I'm being say, a bit devil's advocate there, but that's you see when when I had David Frum on here and he's like, oh, it's a fad; it'll pass. It can't pass if you have structurally altered the institutions to be intrinsically illiberal to intrinsically understand that there's no such right as free speech if it harms other people, for example, or that, or that certain intellectual projects are inherently racist or sexist. Um, uh, yeah, I was a sort of astounded when he said that. I mean, that that was just ridiculous. I mean, I, I, I think you just have to look at how long speech codes have been around in the universities, which is 30 plus years. And the younger, I mean, the surveys I've done, younger academics are twice as uh, pro-cancel as the older ones. So this problem is going to get worse um, but there are some bright spots. I think in the UK, you can see the sort of 18-year-olds uh, are considerably more less woke than the 22 to 30-year-olds. To I mean, there are some changes afoot there. I haven't seen this in the US. Um, but I do think the, the government intervention to change, I mean, Cass Sunstein makes the point that smoking and seatbelt laws, you know, they were introduced as laws and then they became norms. And I think if a sort of free speech law comes in, uh, that then can help to establish a new norm. Well, I I hope so. On the on the <laughs> on the hope front, you <laughs> you you uh, to go back to white shift a little bit. Um, you you posit a sort of pretty successful, very long term <laughs> that that the our societies have absorbed a really extraordinary amount of new people. I mean, the United United States now has fourteen percent of foreign born. I think the UK uh, is is more than that at this point, but I'm not entirely sure. It's uh, about the same, yeah. Yeah, and th th which is historically, a, certainly Britain is a, it's historically unprecedented. This country, it's it's up there with the with the shifts of the early 20th century, um, uh, and that will lead to these kind of racial tensions and the insecurity of the natives and so on and so forth stuff that we can predict, uh, but that eventually. And therefore, in the short term, we're going to have lots of conflicts. We're going to have lots of pain. We're going to have a lot of lack of assimilation. We're going to have conflict and all the rest of it. But eventually, after a few uh, generations through the washer dryer, as it were, uh, <laughs> um, and through the wonder of miscegenation and the wonder of increasing levels of intermarriage, uh, and with any luck, I mean, one reason I, I actually think it's a good idea to slow the pace of immigration in America is because we need to integrate the people who are already here in such large what? numbers that they can operate within their own communities entirely and never have to connect with everybody else. Yeah. And I want everybody to be part of the same project. I mean, this is, this is white supremacy talking, but that's what I, that's what I, that's what I really want. Um, well, and, yeah, but I you say in the end, we'll probably all be some variety of beige and most people will, right. most of the people we now, people are terrified of, we're going to identify as white. That, that we're, it's just the same old American story, except we've done something very big recently and we need time to digest it. And we need a long-term historical process to, to sort it all out. Yeah, I think that's, that's sort of my, my view on it is, is that the stress, we're going to experience the sort of anxieties and stresses and strains in our lifetime uh, through past 2050. Um, but then starting in the late part of our century, just running with the math, I've got some projections for, for Britain, but this is going to happen in the U.S. too. The mixed race group will start to become, start to emerge as the sort of, it's already the fastest growing group, but it'll really start to become a, a factor. So by, like, just in terms of England, I think it's 30% of the population by the end of, 
uh, by 2100, and then by 2150, it's sort of 75%, you know, and it's on this logarithmic rise sort of into the 90s a few decades later. So, yeah, I mean that, but the problem in a way is that's kind of the 2100s and we have to deal with the 2000s. So, and, and I think that the, the pro, if you were thinking about social cohesion, you'd slow down immigration in the 2000s, particularly the early decades of the 2000s, and then you'd let it go once you had that emerging mixed race group in the 2100s. I mean, that would probably be make a lot more sense. And, and in the US, you could see that slow down in the, you know, 1924 to 65, uh, you know, helped, you know, ethnic neighborhoods began to break up and, and people began to mix, particularly by 1980, let's say, took 100 years, you know, 1880s, 90s to the 1970s and 80s for the Southern and Eastern European groups to more or less melt in. Um, so I don't think we should expect it to happen much quicker than that. This yeah, time but around. you, but prudence, it seems to me, and more successful coherence as a society would would lead one to want to slow things down a little bit now. Instead, we seem to be opening, uh, intensifying, and accelerating immigration into the United States. And there's one thing about the left I never quite got. They, they many of them believe that all white people are, or, or most white people are inherently racist. That Americans out there. Are, the worst people on earth, and you can't trust them, and they'll 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 vote for fascists like that. Um, and then they, the same sign, they say, but let's bring in lots of lots of non-white people <laughs> just to, so that we can up their fascistic uh, 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 temptations. And I'm just like, well, just to, on a sense of prudence, if you if you believe one that white people are tend to be horrible when non-white people arrive, then maybe. Maybe stagger that a little bit so that you can you can you can actually neuter some of that with a more gradual integration process. But they're more seems to be more concerned with their own moral stance than they are with actual prudential, practical questions of how we uh, uh, assimilate and bring about an actually sort of coherent multiculturalism as opposed to an incoherent multiculturalism. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's this project of radical social transformation that excites this 8% who are, you know, and they are probably wired psychologically to see differences stimulating, which some people do. Absolutely. I mean, of course, I, I see it as stimulating in certain contexts. But because they are all of that particular makeup, for them, it's it's a great experiment. It's a lot of fun in a way. And that's what they want. Uh, and and of course they have this this mistaken notion of expunging the, some original sin that they attach to whiteness. Um, yeah, I think that the longer that goes on, the worse things are going to turn out. <laughs> but maybe the kind of second, third generation, or, or even first generation immigrants are going to. I mean, they're less polarized. They're less into this stuff. And maybe they will kind of inject enough sense into this. I mean, I guess the problem is electorally, you can have a coalition that works in America between the woke whites uh, and enough Hispanics and Asians, at least for now, uh, along with African-Americans, to at least have a chance at, at winning power. We'll see whether that lasts. In Europe, the left-wing parties are are all, they've all had their worst results since the 30s and 40s. And they're all in, in, you know, the Labour Party is nowhere in Britain. And this is not a winning formula in Europe. But maybe in the US, they might be able to keep that rainbow coalition that, that might be able to give them power, at least in the presidency. Um, and so that's what they cling to. And I just think it's, it's not great for social cohesion and for the unity of the country. Exactly. I was um, <clears throat> struck uh, by the, the zeal with which this left modernist class 
that that is has so much uh, power in the media jumped on uh, the shooting of uh, the Asian uh, massage parlor people in Atlanta because they're extremely invested in making sure that Asian Americans think of themselves as victims of hate and as absolutely indistinguishable from other victims in this rainbow-colored coalition. And it is also, and they're terrified of the possibility that Asian Americans and I think Latino Americans would be quite susceptible to an appeal to say, no, you shouldn't be being discriminated against in higher <laughs> education. No, you should be proud of your success. No, the model minority myth, it can be misleading in some ways, but the broad trajectory of Asian Americans in, in this country is proof that this country is still this incredible integrating and positive influence and can, and can thrive with the help of immigrants. Uh, there's, you find that the success of Asian Americans absolutely sends these people into paroxysms of rage and spluttering. They will not, and, and the more Asian parents, I think, begin to realize, whether it's in Brooklyn uh, or in San Francisco, that these school authorities are out to harm your children's chances, that they, they are deliberately and actively discriminating against them because they're succeeding. Uh, and that's right. going to feed that's going to feed some crack of that coalition, and, and, and rightly so. I agree. I mean, I think it'll be interesting to watch, but the last two, three election cycles, I mean, you can see in party identification <clears throat> that Hispanic and Asian party identification has, it's, it was most democratic, I think, in 2008 or thereabouts, and it's been dropping ever since. It's gone down sort of 20 points. There's now more independence. So yeah, I think they're going to be much more of a swing vote than they have been. I mean, they're already somewhat of a swing vote. Our trouble uh, in the yeah, United but... States is that unlike the United Kingdom, which has managed to develop a, a coherent, however, you can have different judgments of it, but it's coherent conservative majority government. I mean, quite a solid conservative majority government. And here we have a political party that seems to be completely untethered to a whole bunch of reality that is still right, right. worshiping and controlled by this cult figure, this dangerous, uh, half deranged uh, cult figure. And, and they are increasingly separating from mainstream culture in a way that becomes, and so those of us who are concerned about these questions and want to push back against overreach, what we think on the left, are in this awful predicament that we, we can't, the Republicans are too nuts and right. and represent, in fact, many of the things that we're trying to avoid. Uh, and, and so where do we go? How do we resist? If, if the right has gone crazy uh, and the left has, <laughs> has also gone crazy but, but is still capable of forming a government, um, where do we go? How, what is the best strategy to fight back against this? Well, I, I mean, I think the hope would be that you'd get a rational populist you know, in a way, the Republican Party was it was run by the business. The business wing would kind of wield power uh, in Congress, um, and the populist wing would, would the, the Christian right and so on would be would be there for the for the elections. Um, I, I think if the Republicans can move to this kind of more rational populism, where it's about pushing back against the unscientific and irrational left. Uh, also sort of coming to a, a sort of accommodation on immigration, which would slow things down. So it would speak to that part of the base as well, without indulging the crazy stuff, the stop the steal and denial of, of climate change and, and all these other things. So so I think the, the hope would be that you get 
some kind of a rational populist figure that comes in that is is able to you know, still win over the support of, of, of many Trump voters. And some of the polling I've done would suggest that actually the majority of Republican voters would like Trumpism without Trump in a way. I mean, many of them are still attached to Trump, but I think they just want somebody who's going to push back against PC and the media and advance these culturally protectionist policies and push back on wokeness. I think those are all things that a candidate could do um, who was committed to reason and science and, and, and you know, <laughs> liberalism and, and fair procedures of democracy. Well, yes, there, that, that possibility is always there. It just seems <laughs> right. to be permanently vanishing from the horizon. I would love that to be the case. Um, Erica, that, on that rather um, tentatively hopeful <laughs> note, um, I want to thank you so much, but we've gotten to the weeds of a lot of stuff here. I think we've aired some things that will make some people uncomfortable that I think are really worth airing. Um, thank you for your courage in actually dealing with this subject empathetically to all the people involved and not just dismissing white majorities as <laughs> hideous, seething masses of all would-be clanners. Um, and... And, and offer a kind of rational attempt to compromise for the future. I am optimistic in the very long term. Uh, I am scared right now. Um, I, 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 I feel that these forces are, are becoming ever more aggressive. And, and I fear that Biden uh, has completely capitulated uh, on I every front yeah. to them. I, I think that's right. I think he has, which is too bad because he held the promise of being more of a unifier, but he hasn't. Because ultimately, you're going to have to make an accommodation with people who want the culture to change, a culture to change more slowly. Not so. So this is the, the difficulty: is to get past this kind of binary, totalizing, open versus closed dichotomy. To saying, okay, some people want it slower. I accept that's a valid choice. Uh, we'll meet in the middle. But we have to be able to get there, but we're not even remotely close. Especially when those positions are so moralized that to, I mean, when, when Nancy Pelosi says building a wall is just immoral. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, what do you mean? Um, but yeah, you're right. Um, well, with any luck, these kind of conversations will help move that along a bit and destigmatize some of the taboos against even discussing these these real questions. Uh, human human beings are racist. They are, well, in the sense that we are tribal creatures and we fear outsiders. This is not something we're going to eradicate from human nature. It's going to be part of it. And we manage it as best we can to avoid the worst parts of it. I think we're constructing policies that will make the worst parts of humankind and human behavior uh, flourish. <laughs> and we will, be, we will be avoiding places where we can be calmer and more rational and more empathetic to one another. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we can sort of clamp down on the sort of racism hostility to the outsider or superiority, whilst at the same time respecting attachment to uh, what people know as their the country they've known growing up, etc., um, and and slowing change down. I think that's perfectly reasonable. But well, let me ask you, you know, Erica, just before I'm finished here, you yeah. just personally, you are yeah. this multicultural, polyglot, ethnic mix, <laughs> right? How did you get to the point where you sympathize somewhat with these these troglodyte uh, <laughs> right. uh, white deplorables? I mean, how just personally, how did that come about? Well, I think it's sort of I mean, I grew up abroad a lot in Asia. And so I sort of had more of a sense of national identity, I suppose, 
you could say, because there were the, the school would have the international day and everyone would have their country booth. So I had that sort of sense of national identity quite early, which I don't think a lot of people necessarily have. And then I think I could see things a bit from the majority and the minority view. So in, I grew up in a very waspy uh, suburb in Vancouver and, and where I was sort of, you know, I had a non-white mum and clearly was different uh, from my, my classmates who were mainly Scottish English backgrounds. Um, but at the same time, also growing up in Vancouver where, you know, there was a big increase in Chinese population in the sort of 80s and, and 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, so I think I could sort of see quite where the, where the minorities were coming from and, and, and feeling outside the tent, but also to see where the majorities were coming from. And that's sort of partly where I, I draw this from is and, and is and that piqued my interest. And so I got interested in this whole idea of majority ethnicity. What because actually all groups have ethnicity, which is, you know, com belief in common, common ancestry and memories and so on. And that's where it begins. And then uh, academically, I started looking into this in the 90s. And, and here we are. Well, we're grateful for it. I'm grateful for it anyway. Uh, White <laughs> Shift, go buy it and read it. It's really interesting. Um, and look up uh, the social construction of racism. And you can find it in the Manhattan in City Journal, I think, or one of the Manhattan Institute uh, publications. It's a report, yeah. yeah it's a report yeah. for the Manhattan Institute. Eric, thanks so much. Thanks very much, Andrew. That was great. It was. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.